KDOW 89.3 FM Washington. So good morning and welcome to Code Pink Radio here on WPFW. We are one of the most recent additions to the lineup. And uh, so for those of you who are faithful listeners or uh, new listeners, you could uh, send your money to this hour and uh, let people know that you appreciate Code Pink because they're doing our uh, our annual, semi-annual a f- fundraiser to keep the program going, to keep the station going. Um, this morning we have two wonderful people from the Latin America campaign of Code Pink, Leonardo Flores and Terry Matson. But before we get into, what is it we call it? The tale of two countries, uh, right. the hypocrisy of the United States in its treatment of our sisters and brothers, the countries of Latin America. But before we do that, we have a couple of really important announcements. One is happening tomorrow, Friday the 11th and Saturday the 12th of October. And this is the March on the Pentagon tomorrow, Friday, at 11 a.m. There'll be a gathering that you are invited to join at the uh, White House. Mm, great place to come together to uh, to express our outrage over the military-industrial complex that we were warned about so many decades ago. And uh, we'll be marching from the White House to some of the exemplary places, the World Bank and others, to uh, to state our disapproval of what they're doing. So please join us tomorrow at 11 o'clock. We'll end at the Washington Post, which is a good symbol of the mainstream media, which WKFP is not. WPFW is not. Thank you. So, so tomorrow is the, is the march, but the other piece is Saturday the 12th. There's the Anti-Imperialism Revolutionary Summit, which is, has the nice acronym AIRS. And that is a wonderful opportunity for you to, uh, to feel the fall, to come together with so many other activists at St. Stephen's Church, which is at the corner of 16th and Newton Street, Northwest. And St. Stephen's is one of our, our great churches. It does what churches are supposed to do on every day except Sunday, and that is to host revolutionary people. So Saturday from 11.30 until 8.00, there is a conference going on, this AIRS Summit, and you're invited to come to to learn a lot about different programs, including the uh, one of the Latin American programs that Terry Matson, who's one of our guests today, is going to be on one of the panels, Medea Benjamin, Anne Wright, and other, other Code Pink luminaries will be on the program. Uh, so please come and join us. It's, uh, it's quite inexpensive. I think the tickets are $10. And if you, as my old friend Mike True used to say, if you can't hack it, come anyway. Um, so come and join us for lively discussions, for good information, and, uh, and to deepen or to start your relationships with other people who are here in the D.C. area protesting. So um, so let's do that. So tomorrow, just remember that big thing, uh, the March, Saturday, the summit, and, uh, and then when that's over, um, we're going to be talking today about the Troika of Tyranny, but uh, so, and we know that those are Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And uh, and if you'd like to demythologize that, if you'd like to deconstruct that whole notion of that troika of tyranny, you are invited to join Code Pink in a trip to Cuba. 
a trip to Cuba, which I'm so happy to share with you this morning, because on my way to um, the station this morning, I was mentioning on the metro how cold it is this morning. And so for those of you who feel the same way I do about the chill in the air this morning, you're welcome to join Code Pink in Cuba, in beautiful Caribbean island country, in December the 14th through the 18th, or you can ex- do a more extensive trip 14th through the 21st. Um, application deadline is October 25, and you can find out more about our trip to Cuba at codepink.org, codepink.org backslash Cuba, if you want to be exact. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, so there's uh, the big conference, the march and rally tomorrow. There's the conference, and then there's the Cuba trip. So some good things happening this fall. Um so back to Code Pink. Um, I'm your host, Pocky Wheeland, and I am delighted to have these two wonderful guests today. Uh, just a reminder to people that you know Code Pink has come a long way. Many of you uh, think of Code Pink as this great organization of that women-led anti-war organization that uh, built our reputation challenging the president and Congress regarding Iraq and every intervention that the United States has engaged in ever since. Uh, but now we have some campaigns, and the campaign we're going to focus on today is our Latin America campaign. And as I mentioned, we have a, a wonderful campaign that's really lo- located here physically in the D.C. area. We have Leonardo Flores and Terry Matson, and our third person is Michelle Elner, Elden. Elner, who uh, who will be joining us sometime, but not today. So we have two thirds of the Latin American program, and uh, and they have a lot to share with us. Particularly since they've both been in these two countries, we're going to be talking about Venezuela, and with primarily with Leonardo and Honduras with uh, with Terry, and uh, and look at some of the overlaps. And so I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. And uh, so let's let's start with. Uh, with that, one of those troika of tyranny. And I'll just give you a little background before that. Before it was part of that troika, it was, uh, it was deemed, this is of course the language of President Trump, but before Trump came into office, uh, President Obama referred to Venezuela or focused on Venezuela as the greatest threat in the Western Hemisphere to the United States, uh, which is if it if it didn't include the terrible sanctions that began with that, uh, would be laughable. But it's really serious, and so let's uh, let's hear what uh, what Leonardo has to say. Sure, I mean it actually starts with uh, the aggression against Venezuela starts with the under the Bush administration when they supported the coup in two thousand two, and since then it's been unrelenting pressure really in, to, in order to force regime change one way or another. And then with President Obama, he signed an executive order that called Venezuela an extraordinary and unusual threat to the security of the United States. Uh, and then now with President Trump, he's come, doubled down on these policies. And But what's really, really troubling about the, what Trump has done is that he's imposed these deadly sanctions that have led to the deaths of 40,000 Venezuelans. And that's according to a report by the Center for Economic and Policy Research right here in D.C. And and that, I think, is, is certainly something that, that we're also terribly aware of. The, the cost of sanctions on the people. And, uh, and just recently there was the, the reference uh, to the sanctions squeezing Maduro. And, of course, we know that what sanctions do, and I've been aware of what sanctions do since my involvement in anti-Iraq war, was uh, they hurt the people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so we've had at least two U.N. special rapporteurs denounce these sanctions and say that they are basically amount to a a collective punishment of the Venezuelan people. One of them went so far as to call them a crime against humanity. The U.N. Human Rights Council has uh, in a vote in March 2018 or 2019, sorry, they denounced the sanctions as well and expressed extreme concern that they they were causing human rights violations by you know, depriving people of food and medicine. And the sanctions are doing this. Uh, the Trump sanctions supposedly have exemptions for things like food and medicine, but in practice, the banks don't pay attention to this and they block transactions coming from the Venezuelan state that are attempting to buy food and medicine. Right. And that's one of the things that, that I'm really curious about, how, how we can expose that, that there are these, quote, exceptions, but they're, they're not honored. 
That's right. The only actual exceptions that are honored are these licenses that are given to oil companies so that they continue to work there. So, for example, Chevron and Halliburton still work in Venezuela, and they're still making money there. And to be fair, that's how the Venezuelan state is still making some of their revenue by selling to United States, the United States. But the, there are no licenses for humanitarian exceptions, unfortunately, and that's something that we continually denounce. Yeah. So, so that's for for our listeners who may not know this. Um, what are what are the antecedents to the uh, the United States calling out Venezuela as this terrible threat to us? Well, let me just start. I mean, I mean. I don't want to go through the whole story because it's long, but I'll start in 2018, right? And so in 2018, in January, uh, the Venezuelan government opposition had been concluding several months of negotiations in the Dominican Republic, and they were basically had reached a landmark deal. It was it hadn't been signed yet, but it had all been drafted. The parties then left the Dominican Republic, went back to Venezuela to talk about this deal with the you know the other party, the other actors involved. During this time that they're in Venezuela, we're talking about a period of five or six days. You had then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson talk about how in the history of Latin America, it's the military who has been in charge of peaceful transitions. (laughs) (laughs) And this was right before the presidential elections in May of 18, correct? Yeah, this was was all unfolding right before a legitimate this was this was early early february and so you know of course there's no i don't can't think of a single example of a peaceful transition handled by a military (laughs) in latin america if anything the militaries have been you know responsible for terrible human rights abuses throughout the continent and then in that same week tillerson threatened uh, an oil embargo on venezuela and so this is what the united states was saying in public you can only you know assume that they were saying much worse things in private to their clients basically their their puppets that win the venezuelan the very right wing of the opposition. Mm-hmm. And so the parties all came back to the Dominican Republic. The right wing opposition refused to sign, and they then presented a completely different agreement, which is you know kind of unheard of on the day that you're supposed to sign the deal to start renegotiating again. So the ne- negotiations broke down, in large part due to this U- U.S. interference. The government decides to hold elections anyway, because this was one of the points of the dialogue, to yes. bring forward elections. They decide to do that, and they decide to honor many of the, the points uh, offering electoral guarantees. So they set the date for March, and then there's an outcry about, no, there's not enough time, so they push it back to May. And then what happens? The Depart- State Department, this is still in February, says they won't recognize the elections, the winner of the elections. This is a full three or four months before they've taken place. And then several candidates are interviewed or potential candidates, including one very important right wing, uh, one member of a right wing party. And he says, why would I run if the U.S. won't recognize me if I win? And one of the opposition candidates who did run was threatened with sanctions. I'm talking about Henry Falcon, who won over a million votes in this May 2018 election. So eventually, you know, the the elections are carried out. Um, Maduro wins with about 6.3 million votes. Uh, the turnout is about 8 million people, which is a little lower than normal for Venezuela, but still kind of in line with regional standards. But, you know, we have this problem where a large chunk of the opposition refused, refused to participate and called for a general, general boycott, which depressed turnout. So now fast forward to January of this year. President Maduro is sworn into office on January 10th. The United States and a bunch of its allies refused to recognize him as president. Two weeks later, you have this man named Juan Guaido, who was a parliamentarian, very, completely unknown in Venezuela in December of 2018. And he decides to go. He was then voted uh, president of the National Assembly because they have a rotating system within the different opposition parties. <laughs> and he was basically picked because he was unknown and he didn't really have enemies and it was kind of a safe choice for them. Then he goes out uh-huh. in the street on January 23rd and says, he declares himself president. He just like puts his hand up as if he's swearing an oath of office, and he says, "I'm now the president of the unit of, of Venezuela." Right, and so immediately after that, Mike Pence tweets his congratulations and recognition. And then a few, like a couple of minutes, or sorry, like maybe like an hour or two later, the White House issues a statement recognizing Juan Guaido as the interim president. And so this, of course, sets this kind of clash between, you know, this constitutional crisis basically in Venezuela and you have then several like the whole world becomes split you have 50 some countries supporting this Juan Guaido coup where the rest of the world refuses to support and then they continue to recognize President Maduro as the legitimate government of Venezuela then you know throughout 2019 we had several attempted coups including in April 30th we had uh, an you know, they're kind of a spectacle on February 23rd when the opposition was trying to force humanitarian in through the border 
well branded with USAID tags. When this aid doesn't go through the border, the opposition itself set it on fire and then blamed Maduro, Maduro supporters. And, you know, this was the kind of the prevailing narrative in the Western media for several months until the New York Times debunked it. I mean, which is really, it took them way too long because this was debunked on Twitter, I think that same day, if not the day after. April 30th, there's a coup, and uh, an attempt, another attempted coup in Guaido with around 20 troops. They take over an exit ramp in a highway in Caracas, and they claim that they've taken over an airbase. You know, this coup lasts for maybe like an hour and a half, and it, it completely fizzled. In late June, there's another attempted coup plot, and that, this plot is foiled before it's carried out to fruition. But it, what a really troubling thing that came out of this is that conspirators were caught on video threatening to kill Chavistas on the street. So they're basically threatening a political dialogue. And it's also revealed that these conspirators trained in paramilitary camps in Colombia on the other side of the border with Venezuela. So now by early August, we have another attempt at dialogue that's going on because this has been the position of the government and more moderate sectors of the opposition, that dialogue is the only way forward. And as this dialogue is going on, the U.S. imposes new sanctions that basically amount to an embargo, basically scuttling this new dialogue. But the parties go back to the table in, in mid-September and the government agrees to a political agreement with several opposition parties. Basically, everyone that participated in the May 2018 elections is part of this agreement. We're talking about a significant chunk of the Venezuelan population who understands that the only way forward for Venezuelans is for the country, to, uh, for, for the people to come, to come to a solution themselves without outside interference. So here we are, and of course, one of the things that was very exciting here in D.C. was, uh, because this is where the embassy is, we uh, we had a lot of people who were supporters of the rule of law, supporters of Maduro, supporters of people who just, people who showed up who didn't know anything about the interworkings of, of the government, but uh, but knew that what the United States was doing was wrong. Yeah, that's right. So we had a, you know, an amazing group of activists come and defend the Venezuelan embassy from a right-wing takeover that was in total violation of international law and of the Geneva Conventions, which holds that these places are basically, you know, for lack of a better word, sacrosanct. They can't be you know, invaded or attacked or used in any way by the host government or the host state. They have to be protected and because that's the foundation for diplomacy. Yeah. And so what happened is that, you know, we had these activists defending it. Then a bunch of right-wing activists came over to try to take it over and, and on that day of the coup, April 30th, there was kind of a clash outside that led to a siege for 30 days. And this, what was really interesting to me about the siege was how it mirrored what was going on in Venezuela. You know, the, the people outside prevented food from going into the building, yes. just like food is being prevented going into Venezuela. Yeah. Can I just say something about that, sure. that um, attempt to take the Venezuelan embassy and the, um, it was a profound activist moment to watch. And I, um, one of the most important international law events I've seen in many, many years of my lifetime. I happened to be in um, Caracas the day of the coup, April 30th, or the coup attempt, and it was about three hours. It was over and done with, I think, 6 o'clock in the morning. You know, everybody started talking about what was going on, and it was over by 9 a.m. You would not believe that here in the States. I think, you know, if you watch CNN, you'd think three days later it was still going on. But for us to have been watching the international news and to see the attempted coup fail, we immediately, I think it was almost a unanimous response among people that the coup was not going to be in Venezuela. It was going to happen here in Washington, uh -huh. D.C. And that's why it was just so profound to see, um, you know, this, this activist response, you know, and to honor the embassy as sovereign Venezuelan territory. Yeah, and it was actually really crucial that people were defending the Venezuelan embassy on that day because the right wing, uh, Juan Guaido's representative to the U.S., he planned to take the embassy on that day, and that was going to be kind of the crown jewel of this uh, coup attempt. Yes. But he couldn't. And because they hadn't really understood what was the dynamics of what the protesters were, of why were there, they were there. And then after that, we see a huge increase of police presence around, around the embassy. We see police basically repressing the people who are there defending the embassy in very awful ways and, you know, the brutal, brutal police action, especially for here in DC for protests. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was just a very, it moved me as a Venezuelan personally to see so many Americans out there defending international law and defending the concept of sovereignty. And I know it moved people in Venezuela similarly. Yeah. Well, it certainly did. Uh, subsequently, they invited us to, to come to, uh, 
to thank us for being there, and uh, and it was an honor to be there. I was actually part of that, the group, and it was really my honor to be there to support the people in Venezuela who have been true to their own their own sovereignty and and to their own ideals, the uh, the aspirations that many of us here in the U.S. have that uh, that they can actually embody in ways that we can't. The, uh, this is, as we noted, the um, week of fundraising here at the station, and uh, they're going to come in right now, I think, with a, a quick break, after which we're going to talk more about Honduras and, and really uh, illuminate the differences in the ways the United States reacts to those two sovereign countries and um and how after after so many years of of benign neglect the uh and that's air those are little air quotes uh, the United States is once again so apparently involved i mean it's been involved for over a hundred years in Latin America and probably much longer um, than five hundred years I would, uh, well I would argue Honduras a hundred <laughs> years for sure with corporate America <laughs> and other nations too. But. But yes, so uh, we're waiting to hear. But uh, but I'm I'm just so thrilled that you're both part of this program and uh, and really leading us, teaching us a lot about what's happening in Latin America, and offering ways for us to be in solidarity. So um, so let's go right ahead, and we'll start because I think there there maybe. Maybe so many of you are already calling in that the lines are just jammed. Well, but, let's hope so. Um, if you're not, now's your chance. So, um, so do that. But uh, but meanwhile, so we'll go back to Honduras because that's these are the two really apparent. Of course, just recently, of course, Ecuador has come into the the four. But uh, and we may have a and few Haiti comments. and Puerto Rico, uh, and we're seeing a lot of uprising, or no, I shouldn't say uprising, transition. Perhaps maybe we're looking at some significant transition, perhaps. Oh, from I, neoliberal models to something more humane. Yeah. So uh, Terry Matson is part of our Latin America campaign and you've just returned from Honduras. So um let's hear what what you have to say and you've just been listening to Leo talk about our relationship with Venezuela and what's what's happening there. Um tell us about what you saw in your most recent adventure in Honduras. <laughs> so um First, before I go into any detail about my experiences throughout Latin America in the last 35 years, I always like to share with people in the audience that my perspective in, in all fairness, and, and I say this particularly sitting next to a Venezuelan at the table, my experience very clearly, my observations are very clearly based on a white English-speaking woman from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, who is displeased with U.S. foreign policy probably for most of my life. And also I think it's very, very important when we talk about Latin America, and you touched on this a few moments ago um, referencing, you know, 100 years of U.S. corporate intervention and um, activities in Honduras. Really Latin America has suffered 500 years of um, – European colonialism, intervention, extractionism, all those things. So I think it's important to, for me personally, to point those two things out before I mm. speak. So, yes, I just got back from Honduras last week. I think it was maybe my sixth uh, time in North in um, Honduras since um, a successful U.S. coup in 2009, irony of ironies, that um, – 2009, June. Uh, successful for whom? For the United States. <laughs> and uh, unlike the, the attempted U.S. coup in Venezuela in 2002. And so this is where, to me, it's very um, – the hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy um, comes forth. And, Leo, please feel free to join in in comments here. Um, there was a, a successful U.S. coup in – well – 
Hillary Clinton didn't quite call it a coup because if it was called a military coup, U.S. aid to Honduras would stop by, by law. Um, but there was basically a blind eye turned to the ouster of, of um, democratically elected President um, Zilea. And um, a U.S. president was installed, Porfirio Lobo, who at that time declared um, Honduras, quote-unquote, open for business. And so what we, meaning open for business to transnational corporations, and what has turned out to be this massive neoliberal economic model pushing for 100% privatization in the country. And it's very, um, at the very least, disturbing to see what this economic model has done. It has created more poverty than it has alleviated. Um, it has for it, there's heinous or very violent attempts to grab land, particularly on the Caribbean coast, you know, beach uh, coastline t- to give to the development of transnational resort corporations. There's mining concessions uh, from Canada and Spain that, um, the government gives uh, concessions to the mining companies by constitution. The local communities are supposed to have a say. They do not. They're looking at having their rivers dammed, their water polluted. And um, it's all done pretty much outside the U.S. media. So one of the most profound things that happened last week while I was there was the um, – the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez's brother, Antonio, uh, his trial for narco-trafficking began in New York City. And it's quite fascinating to see how little media coverage that trial is getting. This is the brother of a U.S. coup-installed president, or the results of a coup in Honduras. What do we see in the media? What do we read in the media? What do we hear in the media? We hear about Venezuela. We hear about the Venezuelan government being a narco-trafficking state, when in fact we have a U.S.-backed government, the president's brother on trial for narco-trafficking. In this particular court case, the president, Juan Orlando Hernandez himself, is referred to as co-conspirator number four. Hmm. So... There's just this is just this is one example of just the acute hypocrisy in in U.S. foreign policy. One of the things that exists in Honduras and has for you know decades um, are military bases, and right now Honduras houses the largest military base, I believe, the largest in Latin America, certainly the largest in Central America, and. It seems, and for those of us who are old enough to have seen this story repeated over our lifetime, there seems to be once a country accepts a U.S. military base, they basically, um, you know, the U.S. isn't going to challenge the internal politics, human rights, drug trafficking, whatever the, the case is. And so you see things happening in Honduras by fact happening in Honduras that stay out of the U.S. media and things that the Venezuelan government is continually accused of being, and yet there's no no actual fact yeah. except media narrative. Yeah. Well, that's not fact. Well, and, and I think one of the things that, that strikes me is how um, Honduras, I know a number of us, when that coup happened, and uh, the president, the democratically elected president, was ousted. Um, there was an uproar, and you know, then it passed. And and Venezuela again, like so many of these other countries, you know, fell below the radar. And then there was the the assassination of Berta Cáceres, and all of a sudden. Honduras comes back into the front. And, and I'm curious about, I mean, I, I see that as a crack. And so, okay, so the dam's open and people are, are again. Yeah, literally, aware. the dam's open. We wish the dam was open. Literally, <laughs> well, I figured it's it cracked. <laughs> anyway, so, so I'm curious about what, what your experience of that, that event and, and subsequent. 
Well, I will say the year before um, Berta was assassinated, I actually met her uh, in San Francisco the night she was uh, she was awarded the Goldman Award for environmentalism. And so in our way, those of us um, who knew her, her community and are familiar with the extraction industry in Honduras, I guess in our own, me particularly, but many of us, in our own sort of naive U.S. way, and I think it's a privilege to say naivete, mm-hmm. We really, really thought that that award was like an invisible shield for her. Huh. And so the morning I got a text message from a friend of mine who lives in, who at the time was living in Tacoa in the Aguan. I think at 5.13 a text message came in saying, you know, and now, you know, telling me that um, Berta was, was dead. And it was, you didn't even know how to respond to that. I mean, she herself knew it was possible every minute of her life and continued to fight. She uh, was a woman, uh, an indigenous woman, Lanka. Um, Her river, her people's river, uh, was 90% dammed. They actually stopped it, and some of the European uh, financing has backed out as well. But you're looking at a community whose um, life source was uh, was threatened, and she fought that, and her community fought that, and it meant going up transnational corporations. It meant going up against a government that supported those transnational corporations. It meant going up uh, against a military, both U.S. and Honduran military, that supported and it helped enforce transnational corporate interests. And... Um, it's a very, unfortunately, it's a story again playing out um, with the Guaypanol community who um, in Honduras who have blocked roads to prevent um, mining equipment coming into their community. And they are now, um, eight of them, I believe, um, are in prison for obstructing uh, the development of a mine, the extraction industry. And this continually plays out, and we hear so little of it in the States, particularly how violent it is. Violent, to me, I would describe probably like what we have learned in our history classes here in the United States as to what the Western expansion was like in the United States. That type of thing, the land grabbing, using the cavalry to to exterminate Native people. It's that type of thing, only the modern version of it. We're going to take a break because I think this is, we're really onto something really important and that is looking at these connections. And, uh, we'll take a break for a moment and be back. Let's talk about So we're talking about Honduras, we're talking about Venezuela, and particularly right now we moved over to talk about Berta Cáceres, who uh, was martyred. 
So uh, the the year that Berta was murdered, uh, March of 2016, um, I helped organize an emergency delegation of five um, human rights attorneys with the National Lawyers Guild to immediately go down and and, um, build a report and do some witnessing, particularly in her community of La Esperanza. And um, so that was a pretty fascinating um, project. Um, That particular delegation created a phenomenal Report, and you can find that report on the National Lawyers Guild website. That report was very valuable to all of us doing lobbying um, to uh, remove U.S. the U.S. military from Honduras, and certainly the fi- at least at the very least the financing that supports that form of U.S. interventionism in Honduras. So I. That report's really great to read, and it was a really important piece, a document for us to bring to various members of Congress, and that also helped us lobby more strongly for what is called the Berta Caceres Human Rights in Honduras Act, and I believe this Congress is the third Congress the Act has been introduced to, still unpassed, but continues to be reintroduced, and we would love to see that that bill passed and what it what it principally asks for requires is um the suspension of u.s the immediate suspension of u.s military aid in honduras and um some i have been told by several members of congress that if that happens there'll be you know a a political and a void leadership void in the con in, in the country and i would argue there already is a void you know, this is a nation being led by, a, you know, a drug cartel basically and run in, a, in a, with complete impunity. So I don't know exactly what that means, void. I mean, there's already a void. For your average people, there's there's no security in that country. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, This uh, where's, what's happening with this bill and how, how it gets forwarded but not, never gets – Actually gets to the floor. I think there's 73 co-sponsors at this point. But uh, you know, this summer there was a, a, a congressional delegation that went to the three countries who are sending, who, from whom most of the refugees are coming: Honduras, El Salvador, and uh, Guatemala. And um, and one of the things that we heard in meeting with Congressman Jim McGovern was that they, when they were in Honduras, the president asked to meet with them, said he would meet with them anywhere, and uh, and Jim McGovern. Congressman from the second congressional district in Massachusetts said he would not meet with him, and ultimately persuaded Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the delegation not to meet with him anywhere. So, when I'm hearing you talk about the bill and uh, and this this uh, suspension of military aid to Honduras, this is another one of those places I think there's a crack, and. Um, and I think we need to take advantage of these uh, wherever the United States, in its capacity as a government, takes those kinds of actions. We need to, to reinforce those and to, uh, and to build on them. That's correct. I, you know, it's really it's, it's fascinating, and maybe more so for you and me, Pocky, because we're a little older, <laughs> that what's happening in Honduras right now with uh, Juan Orlando's brother on trial for narco-trafficking, and apparently some of this money financed his re-election campaign, and of course his re-election campaign was in November of 17, was deemed fraudulent by Luis Almagro of the Organization of American States, and Luis Almagro is notorious for claiming the Venezuelan elections in May of 2018 were fraudulent. We know for a fact the U.S.-backed government re-elected in Honduras was a fraudulent election. So, just another one of those Hippocratic, you know, positions of the United States versus the two countries. But, you know, while we're talking about um, the Berta Castro's Human Rights and Honduras Act, she was assassinated for her activism and environmentalism against the extraction industry in Honduras. And what we see with the extraction industry in Honduras is very his- typical to the historical wave of U.S. and prior to that European um, influence and interest in the Americas where, 
you know, the natural resources become owned and extracted by a foreign power um, in a colonial uh, format or paradigm, extracted from uh, the country and used to the benefit, profitability, and for the use of the extracting nation or corporation. So in Honduras, none of the average citizens are benefiting from this really uh, volatile form of extraction. In Venezuela, the extraction industry is principally petroleum, as most of our listeners know. And when when Chavez was elected president, he had a real uh, belief philosophy that those nat- the natural resources should be used to the benefit of developing society and all of society's people. That's right. When the Bolivarian Revolution basically came to power in '99, Chavez. Uh, he 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 renationalized re- re- the oil industry, and what that means is that he put these profits to work for the people. And I mean, here we talk a lot. You know, when democratic socialism is brought up, they talk about people over profits. And Venezuela did that and keeps doing that with their with their extractive industry, right? And that's what led uh, these oil profits is what led the Venezuelan t- people to make huge uh, strides in social and economic indicators. It's what led Venezuela to have. Uh, uh, to be considered to have high human development by the UN, uh, uh, UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, uh, as late as 2015, right? I think maybe that's, t- well, most likely it's taken a hit because of the devastating impact of the sanctions. But it's, you know, it's a very interesting way to contrast what's going on in Honduras with the extraction industry where the, none of the people are benefiting from this extraction, whereas in Venezuela, they clearly are. And it's led to, you know, Huge increases in uh, public housing. You know, the between Chavez and the Maduro governments, they've built 2.8 million, I believe, they're at uh, public housing units. Let me just underscore that a moment because we we know about the homelessness in this country that just keeps growing and growing. And so in Venezuela, when uh, the oil profits were used for the people, uh, how many homes were built? 2.8 million. And so if we think about four people per home, give or take, you know, we're talking about almost 9 million people or more and out of a country of 30 million people. So about a third of the country lives in public housing. That's very nice, you know, especially compared to where they were living before. Many of these people either were living in, you know, tin shacks or they were people who had lost their homes in uh, and you know, devastating uh, landslides that we'd had early, earlier on in, in the twenty first century. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think those those are really important issues that 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 we can look at to to look at at the the contrast of these two countries. That uh, in my conversations with people who have worked with folks in in uh, in Honduras, particularly the miners. Well, you see that the, the contrast is so. Uh, it's so telling as to U.S. corporate interests that you look at Honduras and how little we hear about how, you know, the impunity there, the land grabbing there, the natural resource grabbing oil, not, excuse me, oil, um, water and gold particularly, and the violence um, affiliated with that, associated with that. All for external benefit, all backed by our tax dollars. And then you look at Venezuela, who's actually, their government is doing something with the natural resources in their country for their people. And the the, the irony and hypocrisy of that is profound. One is vilified and and one is simply you know, kept out of the media in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the links between yeah. Venezuela and Honduras are really interesting. So, for example, when in 2009, during the coup against Manuel Zelaya, one of the reasons that he was given a coup was because he was coming closer to Venezuela and Cuba and Ecuador and Bolivia and Nicaragua at the time, who were in this organization called ALBA, which is the Bolivarian uh, Alliance for the Americas. And so Zelaya uh, was flirting with that. And there were like, advanced talks mm-hmm. with with Honduras joining in some capacity uh, right before he was overthrown. Yeah. And then another interesting tidbit that just came out last week is that we know that uh, during this trial of Don Hernandez, who's the president of the brother of the Honduran president, 
We know that El Chapo supposedly financed uh, the Honduran president's campaign. Well, earlier this year, in El Chapo's own trial, it came out that he was financing right-wingers, Venezuelan right-wingers, right? So he's financing the Honduran right-wing and the Venezuelan right-wing. And so who's hired him to do the financing? (laughs) Who's contracted with him to do the financing? Yeah, and that's a really interesting question, actually, because, you know, there's all this talk about how Venezuela is a narco state. But here you have one of the most powerful cartels working actively to undermine the Venezuelan government. Right. And and not only that, you have the right wing in Venezuela who has links to the paramilitary. So Juan Guaido on February 23rd spectacle that I told you about, he goes into Colombia thanks to Colombian paramilitaries who escorted him in. And there is documented proof of that. There's pictures of him. And what's tragic about that particular story is that the people involved in bringing him over are being systematically disappeared or murdered and leading to some of them to turn themselves into the authorities. One turned himself into Venezuelan authorities and he, and he kind of told the whole story of what was going on and a few more turned themselves into the Colombian authorities. Does it seem to you in a way, I could say to you, all of us sitting here, that we're looking on a global scale of like five or seven cartels battling it out as to who's going to control global capital and global resources? I mean, it's almost beyond it's almost beyond specific borders it's ideology it's global capital it's much larger variables and one thing that really has to be repeated every time we talk about cartels is that these cartels exist because of the demand for drugs in the united states the u.s is the principal consumer of drugs right and when we're talking generally we talk targets we're like cocaine heroin all of them Right? And, and why is that? You know, I mean, that goes into deeper issues of capitalism and the, the society we live in that alienates everyone. Yeah. But. And, and, you know, and, and one of these days we are going to talk about that because I think it, it really is important. I was just uh, talking with someone the other day about how what would happen if we just legalized drugs the way they have in Portugal. Yeah. And uh, and who would be the opponents of that? There and, would go uh, the heroin trade coming out of Afghanistan. Well, the heroin, that is larger now than yes. before the U.S. entered. But but I want to take another another view of this, another slant on this, and uh, and go back to Berta Cáceres and how her death inspired so many people in this country, in the U.S., to uh, to f- work harder to work on the environment, to work harder on our environment. When I, I was, uh, shortly after she died, I was in uh, in Albany where we people were fighting frack gas and gas pipelines, and uh, and there was a great awareness of Berta Cáceres. And, and I think those, when we make these international connections, that, uh, that that's a very important piece when you say, how many cartels are there? And I say, how many groups, how many cells, how many groups? of us around the globe, whether it's Berta Caceres or whether it's Greta, whoever it is, when we, we find these voices and, uh, and amplify them, that no, it's Greta didn't come out of nowhere, and without her, we would still have this. But, but we, we have to take these people who, who are spreading the seeds and, uh, and look at how they're growing all over the country and all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Berta, I mean, I... Lots of people didn't really know her before she was assassinated. I think you had to either be a kind of a, someone who looked at Latin America or very deep into the green movement to know who Berta was before. But after she was killed, she became a symbol, yeah. not just in the U.S., but throughout the Americas. You know, people yeah. in Venezuela yeah. know who Berta Cáceres is now. Yes. Right? And it really amplified um, indigenous cultures and people. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly, that's a great point. She, because Berta not just, didn't only just become a symbol of uh, the environmental movement, she became a symbol of resistance in, from in the indigenous perspective, right? And so resisting this ongoing genocide of indigenous peoples that's going on everywhere in the Americas. Yeah. So, so, I would also argue that indigenous people, and I remember having a conversation maybe as long as 10 years ago, that, and it, you know, that indigenous people represent a culture, a heritage, a spiritual practice that is intertwined with humanity, other species, and the earth and her resources, as opposed to being removed from it and trying to control it. And they have been forever on the front lines of environmentalism and ecology. It's their life. 
it's who they are as a people. And so with Berta's assassination, those practices have now become more discussed um, in, with mainstream environmentalism, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and, and you know what, you're, you're reminding me of a couple of things. One is that, that before we were Germans or Irish or uh, Spaniards or whatever, we were all indigenous people. And uh, and so to, to really look deeply at our own roots, but but to really appreciate what the, the current People who identify as indigenous can teach us is uh, is very important and, and invites our own humility. I had a conversation a couple years ago in San Francisco with a gentleman who was active in the '60s um, with the American Indian Movement. He was one of the one of the um, Native Americans who occupied Alcatraz. Uh-huh. If you remember yes. that moment, and I was talking to him about climate change and the devastation of the planet, you know, we have kind of a depressing moment we're in. And he said, oh, no, Terry, my people call this a teaching moment. And we are prepared as a people to teach you. And it was just profound and just a whole different paradigm for him, from him to be coming from from you know this Western form of Christianity that I was raised in specifically uh-huh. Catholicism. Yes. So it was that was just a profound moment to hear a Native American say, "No, this is not the end. This is not depre- This is a teaching moment." And I think that's exactly how Berta Casares felt as well. And she did not die in vain. This was she's teaching all of us in her death and her activism. You know. And and the the other thing is to, to not fall into a kind of necrophiliac moment. How wonderful it is when we have martyrs, but but to thank her and and the folks who have who have spread her story, who have shared that with us, so that we can we can be inspired to uh, to follow those and and to to deepen our own commitment to the the environment, to peace, and to justice. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because we are just about to enter that weekend formerly known as Columbus Day and now Indigenous Peoples Day. So uh, so just a reminder to our listeners that uh, what you've just been saying, Terry, the the whole gift of the people who are still Indigenous people have to give us. And I'm reminded, you know, they said we were... We, they tried to bury us, but they didn't realize we were seeds. Exactly. And, uh, and so we just keep, keep flowering those seeds and, uh, and appreciating what they have to give us. This is, uh, the code pink hour on, uh, the radio this you've been listening to. And my guest, I'm Pocky Whelan, and my guests have been Terry Matson and Leo Flores. And before we, we end for the morning. I'd just like to ask you if there's anything you thought you wanted to share with us and haven't yet done. Sure, real quickly. And in, in Venezuela, it's actually we call it Indigenous Resistance Day, not Indigenous Peoples Day. Indigenous we, we switched maybe ten or fifteen years ago from Columbus Day. And I think it's really important to highlight the resistance that's going on, not just in Venezuela against these deadly sanctions, but in Honduras against this corrupt uh, narco dictator that they have. People are rising up in Honduras. U.S. funded. People are rising up in Honduras and they're putting their lives on the line. And, you know, hopefully they can, you know, achieve something, achieve greater freedom, achieve, you know, freedom from this tyranny. And in Venezuela, people are organizing and finding ways, creative ways to get around to be able to survive during this horrible embargo that's being imposed on them. Yeah. Amazingly so, I think, as all three of us can share from our most recent visit, the resiliency of the Venezuelan people is is something profound to experience, and it's something I feel that uh, the U.S. government clearly does not understand, completely misread the energy on the streets in oh, Venezuela yeah. and the solidarity of the Venezuelan people among themselves. Yeah. You know, when, when the... Uh when the the Western Europeans came to this continent and the continent south of here, um, they they I think were filled with such arrogance and uh, and such lack of appreciation of what was here. That well, that goes back to that five hundred year history, right? That and that extermination. Yes. Of of the of the 
cultures living in the Americas, highly sophisticated cultures living in the Americas at that time. So what we'll do is we'll appreciate that and, uh, and say we're glad that we've survived this 500 years. Thank you, natives, and, uh, and thank you, listeners. Don't forget to contribute to this radio station. Bye-bye. This is WPFW News. I'm Askia Mohammed. Here are some headlines. House Democrats are preparing a wave of subpoenas after the Trump administration said it would ignore them. Democrats are now threatening to subpoena associates of Rudy Giuliani and State Department officials. That would include former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch. She's set for an interview Friday, but she may not appear because she's still a State Department employee. Democrats are also debating whether to hold a vote to formally authorize the impeachment inquiry. And a Fox News poll released last night shows 51% of voters would like to see Trump impeached and removed from office. Pacific Gas and Electric cut off power for almost 800,000 PG&E customers in Northern California to keep its equipment from igniting wildfires. More outages are planned today and could last as long as a week for some. A forecast of strong winds is posing a major fire danger. Then PG&E crews will examine their system for damage and start turning the power back on as winds subside. Faulty PG&E electrical lines were blamed for starting devastating fires last year, including the Paradise Fire. Among those who will be hit hardest by the outage are the state's most vulnerable, people who depend on medical equipment at home, people who will lose pay from hourly employment, and those who face food insecurity without refrigeration. The UN Security Council is due to convene today to discuss the Turkish military offensive in northern Syria at the request of its five current European members. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, at least 16 Kurds have been killed since, la- since Turkey launched the offensive yesterday. The attack, named Operation Peace Spring, came after the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the region. An additional 33 members of the Syrian Democratic Forces were wounded, the monitoring group said. Some worry that this could be the start of a humanitarian catastrophe. Rights groups in northern Syria have claimed that as many as 100,000 people may have already been displaced. President Trump will hold a campaign rally in Minnesota today, a city where he is now openly feuding with the mayor over the $530,000 in costs associated with the event. It's his first for the campaign rally since House Democrats announced the impeachment inquiry. The president lost Minnesota to Hillary Clinton by just 1.5 percentage points in 2016, and he has frequently talked of his desire to win it in 2020. The city is preparing to greet the president by holding a massive protest in which thousands are expected to attend and will center on fighting policies of hate and Trump's anti-immigration rhetoric. Several demonstrators in support of ongoing protests in Hong Kong caused a stir during the Washington Wizards preseason game at Capital One Arena last night against a team from the Chinese Basketball Association. At least five vocal demonstrations broke out before and during the first half of the Wizards matchup against the Guangzhou Lung Lions. In the second half, several more shouts of Free Hong Kong echoed throughout the arena during the lightly attended game. A United Auto Workers strike picket 
is taking place at this hour until 2 p.m. today at the General Motors White Marsh Transmission Plant at 10301 Philadelphia Road in White Marsh, Maryland. The FBI has carried out thousands of unconstitutional warrantless searches of the National Security Agency's vast computer archives, including the protected personal data of U.S. citizens and residents. That's according to a ruling last October by the Secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court that was declassified this week. Partly cloudy this afternoon. Partly cloudy and cool tonight. Lows 47 to 56. 